Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Words to Live By was given by Bill Dogtrum and is the 11th in our series, Who We Are, Defining Community Through the Ten Commandments. Well, we are um, today finishing up uh, the series that we've been on uh, through the summer built around the ten words. And uh, just, uh, I know that I, I do this over and over again whenever I, I introduce this, but it's, it's important, at least for me, that we understand that, that God thinks he is giving us the keys and the tools of life when he unpacks what it means to live in this kind of community. So that's how we've tried to approach these so-called Ten Commandments. And I've made the point over and over again that the word commandment doesn't appear in either the passage where it occurs in Exodus or the one that it occurs in, in Deuteronomy. These are repeated twice. Um, and, uh, and, and the reason I think that's important is that we realize that when we look at this, while they sound like do this, what they are really suggesting to us is this, these are the boundaries, these are the markers, these are the, 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 the sidelines uh, of the game of life that I'm inviting you to play. If you, if you step outside the boundaries that are defined for us by these ten words, then you're not playing the same game anymore. It's, it's, it's a different game that you're playing. It's a different life that you're living. It's a different way that you're doing this. Uh, this uh, adventure. Uh, and and the, the reason that God does this, I suggested way back at the beginning of this series, is that He is trying to raise up, He is wanting to raise up and challenge a group of people to become His emissaries, His ambassadors, His representatives, His people in a, on the planet so that we can be helpful to Him in saving the world. You know that God's plan is to save the world, Right? That's why Jesus came. That's what he's been up to since 10 minutes after Genesis 3. This is kind of, actually, if you really read it carefully, it's, it's since before even the events of creation took place, God has been in the process of redeeming what he knew would take place. And so he has been in the formation of a community. Um, and I've been suggesting as well and, uh, that the, the uh, language that we're using here um, is, is a way of getting a handle on what Jesus says are the greatest commandments, right? That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love ourselves with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, Jesus took out that middle phrase, but notice that it is included in both the first and the third. You can't love God well, you can't love your neighbor well, unless you understand what it means to love yourself well. Are we, are we good with that? So then these ten words are ways of framing what it means to love God, to love ourselves, and to love neighbors. The first three deal with love for God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't take the name that I have given you to use to signal our unique relationship and use it in an empty or meaningless or pointless fashion. Don't make images um, that, that disable our connectedness by suggesting that I can be represented or more specifically that you can be represented by things that are carved or created or enameled 
uh, don't have any graven images. So that's the first three that deal with our love for God. Then the, then the, second, the fourth one, uh, the commandment to set aside one day in seven and rest, and then out of that rest move into the, to the remainder of the week. Um, that is a way of loving self. Uh, and then we move into the last set, the first one dealing of the, of the last set of six, dealing with honoring uh, the, the elders. If you don't have a past, you don't have a future. Uh, so, so, so as you stand in a very real present, honor what has gone before you and provide foundation for what comes after you. And then the, the, the second table of the law, the five that just uh, are, are just quick bullet points of, of what it means to, to live in a community of the people of God. He says, if you want uh, a community that thrives, here's a, here's a suggestion, don't murder one another. Honor and respect on the negative side, uh, life, and on the positive side, then live well, right? So don't, don't do murder. Don't um, uh, uh, steal and, and so on and so forth. Today we're going to finish up with the last two of these, and, and I think you'll start to see, I hope you will, um, the, the genius that we're, we're dealing with here <clears throat> when we come to this. Um, when each of my kids, and those of you who are artists, please forgive me for this clumsy illustration, but when my kids were in school and they took art classes, um, one of the exercises was to draw negative space. Does that make sense to anybody? Where, where you draw what doesn't appear. And that is a way, for example, if you look at a chair, you, if you draw the negative space, in other words, if you train your eye to see what is not there, emerging out of what you don't see is more clearly what you can see. So if you can think of these ten words as a way of describing negative space, then you can begin to get a handle on what does exist. So what are we not to do? Well, the first thing it says down here in Exodus chapter 20, and we're, we're finishing up this in verse 16 and 17, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So you shall not bear false testimony or not give false testimony against your neighbor. Um, so here, again, Context is communal. By the way, again, I'm very comfortable if, if I'm not making any sense or if somebody wants to follow up on something, just stick your hand up so I'll know to stop and let's talk about it. Okay? Is everybody good with that? I feel like the Energizer Bunny. This is my first Sunday back after vacation and I'm just kind of loaded for bear and, and I'm trying to, okay, I got 35 minutes, 30 minutes, I got to just shut up and move on. So anyway, at the same time, it's more important to me that you get it than, I get, than that I get through it. So feel free to, to, to interrupt and, 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 and we'll, we'll deal with it. You can obviously hear that this is dealing with a covenantal community and dealing with what goes sideways in covenantal community. You can't have, in this particular case, the estimates of the population of Israel range between 750,000 people north of a million people in the desert. So this is not a mom-and-pop organization. We're dealing with tens of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of people, and you are going to have conflict. 
You're going to have tension. You're going to have difficulty, even among, I know it's hard to believe, the people of God. Right? They're going to have tensions, and sometimes it's going to be minor things, and sometimes it's going to be significant things. The reason these ten words emerge is because if we are left to ourselves, we will deal with community in the way specifically prohibited by these words. Right? How many of us have, have found ourselves at the point where if it wasn't illegal and if we didn't believe that we would, not, we would get caught, it would be just as easy to take somebody out as it would be to negotiate new, re, new, new conversations? Anybody else ever felt like that? If I knew I wasn't going to get caught, and, and, or if it didn't matter that I would get caught, then taking somebody out would seem like a reasonable alternative to learning to live on the same planet with somebody who's such a jerk, right? And, and, and so, okay, well, here we rub up against the negative space that it says, don't do murder. Oh, gee, okay, fine. Now, we've got to figure out how to do that. But at the same time, there are conflicts. There are disputes. People take things that don't belong to them. So what do we do in a community when that happens. So you've got the context here of a judicial or a legal environment trying to deal with the problems that arise from living even in a covenant type of community, a community of people who are committed to one another. And, and the first basic rule is don't provide false, misleading, deceptive, or fraudulent witness in a legal matter before the community. If the system is broken at the point of witness, then suspicion becomes the life of the community. If I can't trust those who have said they have seen something to say what their perspective is on what they have seen, then all of a sudden the culture of suspicion begins to define our life together. And God is saying, I think fundamentally... Look, I know that you're human beings. I know what you're made of. I'm pretty familiar with your DNA. There is a going to be a likelihood with that many people in the desert of things going sideways. So when that happens and you are brought to Moses or to one of the elders to try and resolve the conflicts that exist between you, here's a basic rule of thumb. Tell the truth. Now, you'll notice that has the two sides of it. One, don't lie, don't make things up, don't editorialize, don't shape your testimony to an outcome. How many of you know what, what I'm talking about here? He's saying here, this above all other places needs to be the no-spin zone. Don't spin your testimony to an outcome. Just because that's as much false witness as, as anything else, as lying outright. How many of you know how to tell a story that you lost in reality, but to tell it in a way that it feels like you won? Anybody knows how? I mean, if you listen to somebody tell, oh, come, are you guys going to help me today or not, Darren? Can we just start all over again? Maybe, maybe we could start all over again. Do, do, do you understand what I'm, I'm, I'm after there, though? You can tell when somebody has tell, told a story before. By, by, by the punchlines. 
When people first tell a story, whether it's of an accident or whether it's something that occurred to them at work or whether it's just a, relaying a conversation that took place uh, it, that they were, they were witness of or participant in, by the time that story has been told twice, it's already taken editorial shape. True? And if I'm the one that's telling the story, guess who becomes the hero of the story? There's a pretty good chance that I'm going to be funnier, I'm going to be more clever, I'm going to be much more witty, I am going to say with a level of precision exactly the right thing that I would have said had I been thinking in the conversation itself. But by the time I tell you the story, I will have thought of the brilliant comeback. Right? Anybody else do that? And, Paul, and, 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 and Moses is here saying, by the power of the Spirit, look, you can do that in your normal, ordinary, everyday conversations if you want to, but at the end of the day, don't do it in legal matters. Say what you saw, then stop talking. Don't editorialize, don't spin, right? Now, that's, that's, that's the negative space. I'm going to suggest to you that he is going to say, try and move in that direction in the nature of your human relationships because all kinds of us have created reputations for ourselves by our words that we cannot live up to. Remember? Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, remember what his version of this commandment is? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Same thing. They're saying exactly the same thing and especially in a community, notice, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, the one with whom you have relationship. Don't do that because it damages the fabric of relationship. If I say one thing to one person about Elliot and another thing to another person about Elliot, that's false witness. Don't, don't be doing that. Certainly not in a legal proceeding, but out of that negative space, let's move towards a community of integrity and wholeness in our relationships and in our conversations. Anybody else been damaged? by language that has been used about you that wasn't supportable in fact, right? This is why Paul, when he gets a hold of this same concept, he says, here's a, here's, a, here's a new rule of thumb for the community of the people of faith. Don't let any word proceed out of your mouth except that is wholesome, grace-filled, uplifting, encouraging. You see how it moves out Here's the negative space, don't bear false witness, but the positive structure that is framed for us is a community of integrity, it's a community of uplift, it's a community of gracious words, it's not a community of destruction, it's not a community of tail-bearing, it's a community of people who can be counted on to speak and live what they say. With me? So, yeah, Kevin. Can, the question that Kevin's raised is an excellent one. Who is my neighbor? Right? Who is my neighbor? Now, you'll notice in this particular context, it's very narrowly defined. In fact, the word neighbor means um, people who share in that covenant community with, with you. So, for Moses, and in these ten, ten words, the primary neighbor 
is the person who is part of the family of the people of God. So in, say, for example, for us, that would be the the people who are in covenant community with us here in, in the garden. But notice then what Jesus does with this. He says, don't occupy your attention by trying to narrow the range of who your neighbor is. Choose instead to be a good neighbor. Remember how he does it with the story of the, of the uh, Good Samaritan, right? Because an attorney asked him the question, the very same question. Who's my neighbor? Jesus has said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first question the attorney asked was, okay, what are the limitations on that instruction? Who's my neighbor? I want to know who I need to love as myself and who I can just not love as myself. And Jesus said those are the wrong sets of approaches to this concern for the people of God. Why? I want you to partner with me in the saving of the world. It's not who's your neighbor, it's whose neighbor are you. You see? So then it, it, it expands it beyond that and suggests that we do not have, as the people of God the right to bear false witness, even ultimately, against our enemies. We can't shape the outcome of a judicial proceeding against even those who define themselves as opposed to us. We can't do that. So we have to be people who live with and speak with integrity. It's fascinating to me that the Hebrew word for to say and the Hebrew word for to do are the same word. Why, in the Western culture, do we need different words for speaking and doing? The reason, fundamentally, is because we say and do different things. Hebrew, for God to say something, means it's done. His character and His integrity flow, so speaking and doing are identical. And that's what He's inviting us to, into that conversation so that we can be a redemptive presence in a planet that's going sideways. There ought to be one place where people can count on the words of the people who have spoken, and that is the people of God. When you go to work for somebody, and as soon as they find out that you're a disciple of Jesus, they ought to know that your word is gold. You can take it to the bank. Simply because, for no other reason than that you are a disciple of Jesus. Same thing, if you're a Christian employer, if you're a disciple of Jesus who employs people, your task following this is not to bear false witness in matters of contract, for example. In matters of marketing. Don't promise more than your product delivers. That's bearing false witness. Uh, Are we doing okay? Do you see, has the transition made sense to you? So we, we start with this negative space. Don't bear false witness in a legal proceeding, but then we have to move out of that into living with integrity in business, in relationships, in marriage. How many of our communicational difficulties, even in a, in a relationship of intimacy like marriages or a dating relationship, would be set aside if we just stopped being something we aren't? That's bearing false witness. And we're invited 
to become those kinds of people. In, in, in some way, I mean, I, I don't know if any of you saw, it wasn't all that great a movie, but Ricky Gervais's movie last year, um, The Invention of Lying. Anybody remember that? I just, while I, it was funny, and, and I, 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 I tend to love British humor, generally speaking, Monty Python, you know, kind of holy grail. I, I, I love me, okay. At the end of the day, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, okay, I, 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 I get the, the lubrication that needs to occur in, in social structures, where if your wife asks you, does this dress make my butt look big? Lie. I, I, I get I get that. But I'm I'm just wondering about a whole community, a whole structure that is built as our culture often is on falsehoods, on misimpressions, on the management of my impression. And, I, and I'm wondering if there's not an advantage to what he's actually inviting us to here. And that is to say what is true. And if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But you and I have been socialized into what I call, and it's, it's old now, but euphemistically, I, I hope that's not such an archaic reference that you don't understand what I mean. I refer to the Chandlerization of conversation. Anybody know who Chandler is from the Friends series? That series, more than any other else, and, and, and with it, Seinfeld and some of the others, which, please don't, wonderful, funny, but it created a culture of the comeback where every line is a setup for a joke or a double entendre or a a conversation that takes us one way or the other. And I see it happening all the time. I, I sit in the cafeteria at school and I just listen to the Chandlerization of the conversation where everything everybody says becomes a punchline for somebody else's joke. And I'm wondering if, if there might not be a different kind of community created. And, and I get humor. I love, I love it. I love it. But I'm wondering how many people are just going into conversations with the shields up because of the terror of attack for the entertainment of the masses. And I'm wondering if there's not a space for not bearing false witness, for not spinning, for being present in a conversation speaking and living with integrity. Does that make sense? I, I, and, and, and maybe it's just because I'm old and, and I can't keep track with all the conversations all the time, but I found myself sliding into that, that comeback conversation in a way that ultimately ends up damaging relationships. And so I'm suggesting that it, it moves out from simply bearing false witness in a judicial proceeding to living with openness, freedom, and integrity. Would you like a relationship like that? Does that sound like something that would be appealing? Um, I think it is. So this is rooted in the character of God. I guess this is what I want to say about all of these ten words. They're rooted ultimately in the character of God, and it's part of what it means for us to be as holy and His representative people. He wants the world to see 
in us, in his people, in this community, how it can function. And we're going to get it wrong. We're going to offend people. We're going to hurt people's feelings. But when we do that, can we at least then come clean and state what is true without spin? You see? So then, then we move on, and I want to finish up this series with this last one, because this tenth word is the gateway to the violation of the others. So it begins, the ten words begin with what will enable you to live wisely, well, and freely. Don't have any other gods before me. Jesus' version, seek first God, His kingdom, His righteousness. So they're saying the same thing fundamentally, right? So that's the foundation, that's the framework. But here we end up in chapter, uh, in, in chapter 20 now, verse, let's flip on to the next one. Thanks, uh, Brad. Don't covet your neighbor's house. And that means household, not just the place that he lives, but his, his household, which includes things like his wife in this culture, his manservant, maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your, to your neighbor. This is a very common list. You will see it in numerous of the cultures at the time. And it's a way of synopsizing what a person owns. And unfortunately, in this culture, and then the text reflects it, women were viewed as possessions. Now, you'll notice uh, they're at the top of the pile of possessions. It goes down from there. Uh, that's not a great comfort, but n- n- nonetheless... Um, we, we need, I just need you to know that we're dealing with a contextual cultural document that still can speak words to us today, all right? So we, we get that property is not exactly the right language to use about wives. And in fact, by the time even that we get to Deuteronomy, 40 years later after this event, uh, wife has become... The, the first thing in the list. Uh, but notice I just said first thing in the list. And unfortunately, the culture still had viewed women as uh, objects. By the way, that is what happens when we don't practice the mutual submission that Genesis 2 calls us to in relationships between men and women. That Paul is after restoring in Ephesians chapter 5. That's what happens. Women become viewed because of their relative weakness physically as property and possession. It's ultimately damaging in significant ways. Can we, however, set that aside and just talk about where, what he's after here? The word covet is a, um, uh, a strong word. It, it, it means to desire, to yearn uh, for, to lust after, and usually for the sake of one's own use or gratification. It does not require action. In other words, because I covet something, it doesn't mean that I'm going to go into my neighbor's house and take it. But notice that this word is saying the act of coveting already begins to damage the fabric of your relationships. If you define your next-door neighbor by the vehicle he drives, you have already demeaned the personhood of your next-door neighbor to the possessor of what you want. Do you see how how it moves us in that direction? Does that make sense? 
So he is saying, and, and, and notice, this is how you move into the violation of these other ten words. Here's what James says. The reason you murder, the reason you have wars, the reason you have these violations of the personhood of others is because you want what you can't have. And so you, you murder, you steal, you kill to get what you want. And so Moses is here saying, God is speaking to us through Moses. If you want to keep these other ten, here are the framing devices. Don't have any other gods before me. And don't let yourself be defined by coveting. By wanting what somebody else has got. Now please notice, he's not saying... Don't walk into your neighbor's home and see a piece of furniture or see a work of art or see um, some technological thing and, and, and say, boy, that would be nice to have. That's not what he's after here. The word covet is not just wanting at a, at a, at a simple level. It is when that, and you know how this works, right? Anybody else? Am I the only one that does this where you just walk into somebody's place or you, or you see a car or you see a, um, and, 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 and he's even going to say when you see somebody else's wife and I'm going to shift it to husband and you say, my life would be so much better if I just had that, that person, that thing. My marriage would be better if I were married to him or to her. Do you see how coveting sets the table for the violation of don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal? It opens the door to the violation of the other, of, of the other ten, right? And he's saying, don't even let that seed begin to take root in your gut. Because as soon as it does, the community is already beginning to be, to be shredded. The community is already beginning to be tattered and torn. How many of you have noticed that? That when, 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 when the three of us... Okay, let's just us talk. Nobody else is paying attention. So. <laughs> no, but but do, you, do you see how it works? I've noticed this with myself. I had a, I had a friend when, when I was... Uh, yes, I, I have had one... Um, when, when I was younger, I was, I was very much into uh, high-end uh, electronic equipment. Uh, uh, speakers and, and, and receivers and amplifiers and turntables. The, the things are needle down. Anyway, um, <laughs> played big round black things, right? Anyway, um, so we had all these things, and, and, and I it was, had developed my, 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 my wish list. And I had a, I had a friend who similarly uh, was involved in these things, and he and I would regularly go to the, to the hi-fi. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody translate for me. Anyway, um, into these, these stores where, where, and, and would just listen to this magical music. I was reading on the web, the, uh, uh, and it must be true because it was there, um, but the development of a, of, a, uh, of a set of speakers, it, it, it's made out in Lake Elsinore, a, a set of, of speakers, $15,000. And I'm just saying, I could really appreciate music. You know, because here's, here's the descriptor. You can hear Yo-Yo Ma pull the bow 
over the cello. Not just the sound that that creates, but you can hear. Is anybody else just starting to drool a little bit? Nobody else like that? No, nobody else? And, and, and the women... What? Okay. So take whatever it is, right? And I walked into this guy's home, and he had just purchased and had dialed in and tuned in. He had, he had analyzed his system. He had a spectrum, third octave spectrum analyzer. He had dialed his system in. It was a computer program that you sit in this space, and those two speakers and the ones behind are tuned in, and, and it is designed. And, and I'm just, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just, all of a sudden, I'm starting to not like him very much. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? And Moses just says, here's here's a suggestion. Don't let the nature of your community be defined by the possessions of other people. You will never become yourself by wishing to be somebody else. You will never be content as long as you define contentment by the possession of what somebody else owns. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. And even if it is, it's because somebody has put a whole lot of energy into doing to his or her grass what you haven't done to yours. If you want green grass on your side of the fence, water it, cultivate, fertilize, care. But don't think simply because you hop the fence that all of a sudden that grass is going to be as magically green for you as it was when you were on the wrong side of the fence. And he's noticing that this sets up the root in our heart that pulls us into, into damaging relationships. Anybody been at a place where, where you, do, you don't know what happened? In your relationship with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a, a, a friend that you've been, been with and, 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 and you realize, wait a minute, the reason I can't be friends with this person is because they wanted the boyfriend or the girlfriend that I have and now all of a sudden we're in this soap opera that's gone sideways and what happened there? And it has nothing to do with our fundamental relationship. It has everything to do with the fact that they want something or someone that they believe I have. Anybody else damaged by that? And Moses just says, cut it out. not how I want you to live. I want you to learn, and here's the positive space that is created by the negative depiction. I want you to learn contentment. The antidote to coveting is contentment. Learn to appreciate and value the wife or the husband, the boyfriend, the girlfriend that you have. Learn to value and appreciate what it is that has been brought into your life by the grace and mercy and goodness of God. Don't wish for somebody else's life. Because in the doing of that, you diminish them to simply the owner of what you want. And you diminish yourself as someone who will only be happy when. Who will only be content if. 
Do you you see how how I'm doing this? And sometimes I think I'm just going to go one step further and then then we'll finish this up for a minute. Um, It might not even be a real person or a real relationship or a real object that somebody else has. Most of us start to covet the idealized life, the idealized marriage, the idealized projection that we are told is out there someplace. And we begin to define ourselves by coveting, longing for, lusting after what isn't even real. And shape our whole life in the pursuit of nothing. And I think what he's arguing for here on the positive side is become the kinds of people who are grateful for what's in your hand. Become the kinds of people who are grateful for the relationships that you have. Invest in those relationships. Make them an object of envy on somebody else's side. Somebody said to me the other day, I wish I had a marriage like you and Judy have. I don't think our marriage is all that great. I'm still trying to learn. We're coming up on 33 years. I'm still trying to learn how to be married to the woman. Just obvious. And, and I know that she's trying to figure out how not to kill me. I know that that's hard for you all to understand. But it, it, it's, it's true. What does that mean? All that it means is you have no idea how our marriage got to the place that it's at. You have no idea the price that has been paid, the long, lonely, tear-filled conversations in the middle of the night. You have no idea how we got to where we are. So don't long for the end result. Invest in the process of contentment in the moment. Does that make sense? And then 35 years from now, somebody will look at you, your spouse, your relationship, or maybe the way you have managed your singleness and say, I long for, I wish for a life like yours. No, you don't. No, you don't. You will never live your own life as long as you're wishing for somebody else's. You just won't. Because the only life in which you will ever meet God is yours now. So we've been spending a lot of time over this, over this summer uh, uh, playing with, thinking about these ten words, these ten defining um, boundary markers of relationship. And I want to close it up with this before Jamie comes back and, and takes us into the, into the reflection. Whenever we talk about this language, and you'll notice how carefully we've tried to shift the language away from commandment to to words. And I think that that's a legitimate way to think about it. But if we hear law or if we hear command, we feel the weight of that. We feel the oppression of that. Even today as we sit with this, maybe some of you are are just feeling the weight of that. I want to give you a couple of clues here. One... Pay attention to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and ignore the condemnation of the enemy. Here's the difference. 
Conviction always has hope built in. If you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, you heard this this morning, you realize, you've, you've had a sense of, uh, this, okay, I, whoa, I'm heading sideways here. I'm, I'm off track here. If with that comes an awareness, I, can, I know what to do. I know where to go. I know how to repent. I can move forward in this. That's convictional. Right? If, on the other hand, that same sense produces in you a sense of hopelessness, hopelessness, of despair, of futility, of wanting to give up, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do that. That's the work of the accuser. That's the work of the enemy. And you have one. You, you with me? This and following these ten words is not how you move into grace. This is what grace enables you to live like. Okay? So when, when, when you hear these ten words, it's not like, okay, I've got I've to figure out how to do all this stuff. No. This is where grace is going. These are the nature of relationships that grace is leading you into. This is what you're invited to. Because I think, I, I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I guess... Uh, Anybody else besides me like to live in a community that's defined by these ten words? That's where grace is going. That's where Jesus is inviting us to. This is what He's challenging us to. It's not something anybody... I, I can't do this on my own. But we have a Savior. We have a Helper. We have someone who will come alongside and help us to remember. I don't want to be a false witness. I don't want to be defined by my wanting of somebody else's stuff and will empower us to live in the freedom defined for us by this grace. Does that make sense? So we're going to shift out of this in, in the next few weeks. We're going to be doing some other things. But uh, I, I, uh, the reason we did this way back at the beginning, our, our lead slide is who are we? We are the people who are defined by this desire to have no other gods before Him, to not make graven images and so demean even ourselves, to not take His name in vain, to Sabbath and live out of that rest, to honor parents, to, to, to respect the life of others, to not take the things that don't belong to us, to not be defined by by uh, a desire for other people's things that leads us to stealing or to adultery. We don't want to be those kinds of people and we don't want to be a community of those kinds of people. And what grace enables us to is to move in that direction. So let's pray as, as we conclude here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that... Um, we see in these ten words insight into your character, your nature. They arise out of who you are. And as it turns out, they are how we best live as well. This is what you created us for. This is what will be natural to us as we let grace have its way with us. Grace is not a way of entry only into the nature of covenant community. It is a way of being in community. So teach us how to be graceful. Help us to move in that direction. And as we move into this next uh, um, 
section of, of worship. I pray, Lord, that we would respond, whether by going to the table of the Lord or by inviting somebody to pray with us, to, by finding a quiet place to pray on our own, whatever it is, that we would respond, O Lord, to what you are calling us to. Maybe it's a, a convictional awareness. Maybe it's just an invitation to start to take ourselves and you more seriously. Whatever it is, oh God, I pray that you would help us to say yes by the grace of God and then to live what we speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the garden or if you'd like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org. I come to wait.